Welcome to the Specify Growth Podcast. I'm your host, Tats Nakagawa of Castagra Products. Each week, I talk to leaders and experts about how to overcome adversity, grow massive organizations, and how to create meaningful change in the building materials and construction industry. Today's guest is Chris Gutkiss. He's the president of Island Elevator. Chris, uh, thank you. Thank you for coming on the show. You got it, my friend. Thank you for having me. Yeah. So you were recommended to me as a guest and I went and looked at your stuff on LinkedIn and you're definitely a original. So take me back to, you know, growing up. I, what were some of your interests when you were growing up? All right. Well, I was born into the elevator industry. So I'm fourth generation elevator uh, person. Yeah. My great grandfather was president of the union for about 20 years. My father had uh, got to a point probably in the late 80s, early 90s. He started his first elevator company, didn't work out so well. And then at the time, the company, he had a partner, he split the stuff that went into the five boroughs of New York City. His partner took that. He took everything on Long Island because Long Island, in case anybody doesn't know, is a suburb of New York City. And so he was running it for his partner for a little while. And they started their first iteration of Island Elevator in 1999. I, on the other hand, went to school, flirted with uh, doing the elevator stuff for a little bit. But the one thing I definitely didn't want to do ever when I grew up was to be an elevator man. It was just everywhere. I wanted to do something different. I was special, whatever it is that I thought about myself at the age of 16 and 17. I was moderately okay at basketball. I was pretty okay at everything else. I was relatively smart. I was able to understand concepts and put things together and and problem solve. So that kind of, it was intriguing to me. It was something that I felt like I could do more of, but I just wasn't good at school. So I went to the army. I got out in 2001. I did three and a half years for ThyssenKrupp, which is a large multinational elevator company. I cut my teeth there working under a super talented adjuster mechanic, Anthony Anderson. Then my father broke up with his partner, hired me in 05. And in 05, I started with the, uh, we started as just the two of us in a windowless office in Windanch, New York. And if you know anything about Windanch, New York, you know that it's not a great place to go to work. So we built the company up from there. I spent all of my time, my energy, my effort, my blood, sweat, and tears in order to become the best possible elevator technician, the best. That's all I cared about. I was obsessive about it. What did you do? Like, in order to become the best, like, what were you taking courses, reading? Like, what what, what sort of things were you doing? When I was going through, I was originally part of Local One IUEC. I went through their union training program. It was a four-year apprenticeship. I was obsessive about learning every single course. I crushed the mechanics exam. I knew that this was going to be a profession of mine. And then I would just study because when it comes to the elevator industry, it's so broad. There's just so much as far as different levels of technology, different manufacturers, different years. At any given point, we're talking about 60, 70 years worth of elevator equipment that's currently in service right now. So even if you got out in the next five years, you still now have to learn what happened the last 50 years before you even, before you were born, before you were a bad thought in your father's head. So we want to make sure that we're constantly learning, learning, learning when we want to go ahead and be effective at what it is that we're doing, what we're engaging with on a, on a day-to-day basis. 
So I, I was constantly reading controller manuals and, and electrical schematics and taking uh, online courses and just doing whatever it is, all the little skills that needed for me to be exceptional out in the field, for me to be able to fix any piece of equipment that anybody tried to put in front of me. So I was obsessive about it. And then we got to the point where we started hiring people. And, and then I became obsessive about changing and teaching them how to be exceptional at engaging with all of these pieces of equipment. So it really, it enriched me knowing that I didn't waste all of my time and all of my nights and all of that effort in order to just study and then hold on to that information. Because I look at information, I, I think I heard it from Tracy Morgan, where he said that information is like love. Excuse me, knowledge is like love. You can't take it with you. You got to give it to somebody else. So once I started to like really experience that, that gift of being able to hand somebody off something that I, I spent a lot of time and effort in order to be able to teach myself. And now I'm able to give them basically six months of uh, effort and energy. And I can deliver that to you in one week's worth of training. Mm -hmm. So it's a beautiful thing. And then everything's good. We're starting to grow. And then boom, my father dies suddenly in 2016. And then now I become shotgun president. So that was a very wild and kind of scary and like weird transition because I had put all of my energy into becoming this one thing. And now all of these skills that I had developed over the first 12 years of my career were basically useless because I need to be able to work with people. I need to be able to understand financials. I need to be able to annotate and deliver and train on sales theory and marketing theory, not necessarily fixing elevators. I have to be able to delegate. I have to give the responsibility of taking care of the customers to somebody else so I can take care of the people that take care of the customers. And all of that time, all of those are completely, wildly, completely different skill sets that I haven't spent any time learning about. So now I got to learn about finance sales, marketing, leadership, strategic thinking, entrepreneurial mindset. I mean, it's something completely different. I mean, I know that you're an entrepreneur, Tats, but for the rest of us that are kind of trained into the entrepreneurial mindset, it doesn't come naturally. I, I don't know too many people that came naturally at all. Oh, is that right? Yeah, it's like yeah. having a baby. It seems like a really good idea up until the point that you start having the baby. Then you're like, yeah, maybe I should have thought twice about having this. I mean, everyone's situation is unique, right? So you can read all the books that you want, but it seems like most people I know have learned the hard way. Maybe it's just because it's like each situation is quite unique. And it's one thing to read something and actually do it and, and face the fear and all that stuff is different, right? So Yeah, yeah. Experience is a bitch of a teacher. It's unbelievable how many mistakes I have made. There is no good reason why I should still be in business. There is no good reason. I mean, if my people found out how stupid I am, they would never show up to work the next day. But somehow it works and somehow they come back and somehow we figure out a way forward and it's just, it energizes me to see when they have confidence in what we're doing, when sometimes I don't know if I have confidence in what we're doing. I'm just, I'm making what can, can be by all intents, a calculated bet. And that's the difference between what I understand is the entrepreneurial mindset 
and those that are either striving towards it or, or, or haven't fully realized that they possess it yet is it's not about knowing all of the answers. It's about understanding and accepting risk to know that I'm coming here straight face, straight laced, understanding full well that if I make wrong decisions, I could put my entire family into bankruptcy, lose my house and just blow up everything in smoke. So that's why there is, it's really, when I see true blue entrepreneurs, I am, I am like envious of them because they have done, you know, they are hang gliders. They run all the way off the cliff with all the trust in God and their equipment. And I don't know that if I wasn't thrust into this position, I don't know that I would be looking for it. I don't know if I would be celebrating it so much. It's a hell of a lot of work and it's a lot of stress. Well, I mean, like it or not, you were you were there day one when your dad started, right? So, I mean, although you didn't, you probably kept some of that stuff away from you as you were just specializing. That's entrepreneurship there. Whether you really fully understood the stress of it or not, you, you, know, you were there from the ground floor. Oh, I understood the stress of it because <laughs> when I got over here, the company wasn't financially fully realized. There was weeks and weeks where... Uh, I joined a company and I didn't have a paycheck. So there was things that I was automatically teaching myself in order to, because of a fear of, of failure. You know, that's, that's the other thing that I've kind of gotten to the point with in my life is that a lot of my achievements were due because I was running away from my demons. Now I feel like I'm running towards my goals and it's a lot more empowering when you feel like, okay, I don't have to worry all the time about somebody, you know, about failing all the time. So it, it can be torturous on your brain, yeah. but it also, death is a good motivator. I think there's a 21 pilot song where death inspires me like the dog inspires the rabbit. So it's just constantly chasing me. And, and I feel that, you know, need to go as fast as I possibly can. Sometimes I don't even know why I'm running. I mean, at what point you said it, it so you're you're running towards goals now versus running away from stuff. At what point did that switch flip? Do you remember when that sort of changed for you? Yes, when I started to get some education, but that it started even before that. So I would say that the opportunity for me to be able to realize the switch happened when I first got sober. So when I stopped drinking because I had a drinking problem and that was 10 years ago, that's when I was able to see through the fog. Then I was able to start to develop myself a little bit better and I started to feel a little bit more in control. And it's kind of funny how things work out in life, at least for my life, it's like one step forward, one step back. So I'm feeling more confident about myself and I'm going out there, then my father dies. Now I've got to deal with all of this stuff that I. Uh, you know, to be able to understand and move this company forward and keep it alive. And then we move into uh, education and I start to feel some education. So I went to a program. It was like a shotgun four or five month business training program called Goldman Sachs, 10,000 small businesses. And I started to understand that now I started to feel like I was chasing after my goals instead of being chased by my demons. Then I finished that 2019. All right, hire my first salesman, 2020, boom, COVID. Now I'm back in survival mode. And I know that once we got through COVID, and that took probably about 18 months, 24 months before we actually started to settle down and feel like we had a sense of control 
and opportunity again, as opposed to we're all going to die. Now I'm starting to feel it one more time where I feel like a little bit more confident and I've made some really risky decisions over the last two years and they've started to manifest themselves in a very positive way for uh, our people and for our stability going forward. Tell me about those risky things that are paying off now. A couple of the risky things I would say, well, I've had risky failures and then I've had risky successes. So risky failures, I would say risky successes is one of the things that we did was we started to pare down the amount of elevators that we actually have under service. So at a certain point, we kind of ballooned up to say like 1,200 or 1,300 units. And then we pared down all of these high risk, low reward units. And now we're down to probably around 700 units. Mm. So that being said, the representative portion revenue wise of those units was probably somewhere in the, in the range of 900,000 to a million dollars. So when I turn to my team and I tell them, hey, listen, we're going to be walking away from all this revenue, but we're actually going to be a stronger company when we're done. People thought I was bananas, but that was a, a, a risk that they were willing to take with me. Another risk that my team like just energizes me by being able to take a risk with me is that we went through COVID, COVID was disastrous for us. We were losing tons of productivity. We were wildly inefficient and people were out for weeks at a time. We just could not get out of our own way. And at a certain point, and we didn't lay off anybody during COVID. So we were like, boom, this is us. We're keeping the team together. And if we're going to go down, we're going to go down together. And what happened was we were starting to go down together. And right around the beginning of 2021, I turned to my team and I said, listen, the problem with us is not that we're ineffective. It's the fact that we don't know who's going to come to work tomorrow because of this COVID. The only way that I see that Island Elevator is going to be able to survive this is if we all get the vaccine. So we're going to be mandating the vaccine. And I told everybody we had a large Zoom meeting. I understand that this may be offensive to some people. If you don't want to, I want to let you know that I support you 110% and I will help you find a job at another elevator company. You guys are wildly qualified. But here at Island Elevator, this is what we need to do in order to be successful. And to a man, 100% of the company came with me. I thought for sure I was going to lose at least 10% and almost all of my top people. But they trusted me as risky and as crazy as that was. And that was a step forward where we were able to actually start to build momentum again in that spring of 2021, summer of 2021. So those were some of the risks that panned out in our favor. Some of the risks that panned out against us is when I tried to hire a couple of high value people. They were very expensive and I thought that they were going to be game changers and I spent a ton of money on them and it ended up not working in our favor. So what we we, we ended up losing a lot of money and we ended up losing a little bit of steam during that entire process. So that was a tough one. Another thing that I did was I hired the wrong person to be a CFO for us. He was a fractional CFO and he comes in and he's like, I'm going to solve all your problems. Let me, let me tell you something. And, I, and I'm an idiot at the time. I didn't, I, I had no idea. I thought for sure the guy was definitely going to solve our problems. Came in, for every two problems he solved, there was 10 problems he caused. And that took us a long time to recover from. So there was uh, bad decisions. What I try to tell everybody when they come to Island Elevator is that I, I can't let you be afraid. We like to pride ourselves on you know failing forward. 
we like to pride ourselves on, you know, take a chance. It's good. So I kind of pass on a little bit of that entrepreneurialism to them because I want people to feel comfortable to fail. And I tell them that the only difference between you failing and me failing is that when I fail, it costs the company a lot more money. Yeah. So one of the things I noticed in your social media was you use a lot of memes and humor. Tell me about that. I've always felt like I was, you know, a funny guy. Maybe I've got a quirky sense of humor. I look at things a little bit differently. Maybe, who knows? I mean, I'm not unique. I'm not a freaking snowflake. But on the same note, I also possess this ability where I lack a little bit of a filter. So I'm able to say things that other people would be uncomfortable saying. So my wife, for example, hates going out in public with me because I'll just say things that are against the social contract. So having those two things work together for me kind of helped. And then I got into a position where, okay, now I'm up to the point in my, my personal and professional development where I've got to learn something about marketing. So I went out there and I started to curate all this information. And I used to listen to, I, I still listen to Chris Doe from the future. And I'm listening to Gary V and I'm listening to Seth Godin. And they're all talking about messaging and the other ones are talking about empathy. And then Gary V is talking about quality and quantity and make sure that you're putting out a bunch of posts and all this other stuff. But the overarching theme is that, you know, you've got to be entertaining or educational or something else, right? Inspirational. Right. So I'm not going to be inspirational because sometimes I need inspiration and I'm not going to be educational because it's kind of boring to me. So, and I'm, I've got a little bit of a sense of humor and I think that I can be a little bit entertaining. So I just started doing, you know, messing around. I downloaded an app and I started with the memes, but the whole thing with the, the memes is that it's just an expression of how I look at the world and my passion for the elevator industry. Like I love all things elevators now. It's the last thing that I ever wanted to do, but now I love doing it all the time and lots of observational and I see this and I see that. And so as I'm doing the memes, it actually starts to get easier and easier. Like the first few were really rough. At first I did like a couple of pictures. And then one time I mentioned a, or a couple of times I had mentioned a competitor's name in the meme. And then it was like, it was one of these big multinational elevator companies. And they sent me a cease and desist. <laughs> oh I was, I was like, are you, you kidding? Yeah. Yeah. So I, yeah, I'll show you something. I love it. See, I framed it. That's my cease oh, and the desist. Cease, so right yeah, there. for the podcast listeners, that's the cease and desist letter is framed yeah. proudly. Isn't it? <laughs> all, all because of, uh, you know, me at the time I had like a thousand followers. I wrote one stupid thing. And, and now I've got some international lawyer telling me that I got to pipe down and the, the chops on these guys. They were like, oh, you also have to make sure that you control all of your employees' social media accounts. Nobody can say anything about anything. I was like, are you drunk? They, 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 this is the First Amendment, cuz. I can't do anything about that. So that was my venture into it. And then since then, it's just kind of like, it, it turned out to be a more natural expression of how I kind of see the world through my eyes and through my industry. And uh, I don't really have to work hard at it anymore. I think the, I usually sit down on a Saturday and I'll pump out maybe 10, 12 memes. Wow. And that'll last me for, you know, a couple of weeks. And then when I start to run low again, then I come back in and I pump a few more out. And, um, wow. and then so I just- Walk I, me through your workflow. I mean, do you have, do you use an app for inspiration? Like how, how, what do you do? Yeah, I use, uh, it's called Meme Generator Pro. I work off of an Android phone and it's just got 
just hundreds of meme templates. So I just scroll through it and I look at it and I say, what is this picture? What is, because every picture has like an energy or a message to it. There's somebody in there and they're feeling discomfort. There's these two different characters and they're at odds with each other. And then they work together in the end, right? So we all have experiences like that in our life. And then all I do is just try to label it onto the meme, make sure that the font stands out and then push it out into the world. Now, I don't know if people like it. Now, some people like it because they haven't completely blocked me off of the platform, (laughs) but I see how some other people's, their feeds do. I like, like Ed Rivera, Ed Rivera, who's another elevator guy out on LinkedIn, and he's a guy that was doing it before me, and he helped me out when I was first starting out. But this guy, people love Ed Rivera with absolute, absolute justification. The guy is just a really magnetic energy and personality. But this guy could blow his nose and he would get 10,000 likes. You know, he's just, <laughs> he's just that, you know, beloved by people. And, and, Again, it's absolutely with full justification. I love the guy myself. I put my stuff out in the world and I'm like, I don't know. I don't know if people even like this stuff. Well, do you get any inquiries or business? Do you think? No, no, I don't get any business. That's the whole thing is that I thought I was going to get like a bunch of business from it. But what happens is that I'm so passionate about the elevator industry. What happens is that I end up connecting to other elevator industry professionals. Mm. So I get a lot of feedback from within my own industry, what I have found, and I thought I was going into this thing in order to be able to get customers. What I have found is that people actually, there are a small subsection of people that gravitate to my message. And it's a real message. I'm just putting it out into the world. This is what I think. This is how I speak on a a regular basis. And now I find that people want to work with Island Elevator. They want to help to perpetuate the mission of Island Elevator, which honestly is we get customers on a regular basis. So the being able to surround yourself and bring in people of similar values is way more valuable than a a single customer because one brand new team member, high energy that believes what we believe and is trying to help us achieve the same things that we're trying to achieve. They're worth a thousand customers. Literally, they're probably worth closer to like 150 customers, but you you, you see what I'm saying? Like, and they're worth their weight in gold. So I don't think that it's had the effect that I had planned on having when I went out into the world, but it has had a positive effect in my life. And when I first started out, nobody knew Island Elevator. And I'm talking about people in New York. Like I would show up to bid meetings and they would be like, what company are you from? And I'm like, Island Elevator. They're like, never heard of you. And I'm like, oh, well, we've only been out there for like 20 years. (laughs) They don't care. Because when it comes to the New York market, Long Island is really, really, really small subsect of the 80,000 elevators that are inside the five boroughs. So now what it has done also, it's been effective at raising our exposure. So more people know about us. Now, what is that worth? Who knows? But if more people have heard about us in the industry and then a special subsection of those people want to come work for us, then that that's a huge benefit, a benefit that I didn't anticipate. Yeah, for sure. Now, uh, speaking about humor, the, I mean, the elevator industry must be subjected to lots of you know, horrible or bad jokes, right? So, yeah. you know, being in the industry a long time, what's some of the the worst ones you heard that you can repeat on a podcast? 
the worst, worst joke is, hey, what do you do for a living? I'm in the elevator industry. Elevator industry, heard it's got a lot of ups and downs. So that's, and everybody tells you the joke and they all think that they're the first ones to tell you. And I've heard it so many times, it's bananas. So uh, other than that, there's probably a bunch of really just completely wildly inappropriate things that uh, that we've said to each other. And I'd like to think that I've evolved beyond that. I'm not beyond it enough not to listen to it, but I, I am hoping that I'm beyond it enough not to repeat it. There At least that's go. what would make my uncle. My, my uncle gets so sad. John, I know you're listening right now. I'm trying not to curse. All right. <laughs> there you go. With your company, what, what do you see the future? What, what are you uh, looking towards? The future for us, when we're talking about like metrics, we see ourselves as the most dominant elevator company ever to service Long Island exclusively, meaning we don't go into the city at all. And we're aiming towards 2000 units. 2000 units is like a marker in the elevator industry where if you can hit that, that means that you've built a self-sustaining organization that is committed to the customer experience. 2000 units doesn't happen by accident. So we have a purpose. Our purpose is to build something where we're providing opportunities to other people and we are finding out new things about ourselves and we're delivering a service that people won't be able to compare to anybody else because it's just that good. So that's where we're, we're not there yet but we're getting there on a smaller scale. And as we continue to grow, I think that we're going to continue to get there, but we, we need to have like that big moonshot. Otherwise, why even wake up in the morning? Absolutely. Is there anything that I did not ask you, but you wanted to share before we close this off? You're the question, man. So <laughs> you, you ask the questions and, uh, and what's the weirdest question that you've ever asked somebody? I don't know if I, I I I go in asking a weird question, but your your comment on meme recruiting is a new one for me because I've I've listened to a lot of you know books and and you know had a lot of guests, but I've never heard of meme recruiting, so that's a new one for me. It's not necessarily meme recruiting. Meme is just my expression going out to the world. It of just course, of course, I'm life. shortening it for marketing. But, it, but what's what's more important is the fact that as I'm starting to understand what marketing is, right? So it's easy to assume it, but then when you're in it and then you start to learn from experts, then you start to be able to define it a little bit better. And I believe that it was, I forget if it was Seth Godin or Chris Doe, where they were saying that you can do marketing like it's fishing, where you're going out there and you're throwing out a net and you're trying to bring as much in until you figure out which fish you can keep right? Or you can be the light on the hill, right? And then have people gravitate to you. So I think that what happened accidentally, because what my intention was to go out fishing, but what I've ended up realizing is that I'm more effective if I just stand on the hill, shoot my light out and let people come to me because they 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 relate to something that I'm saying. So that's kind of how I feel like the meme thing, the all of the other dumb stuff that I do. I get people asking me like questions on marketing and I'm and I don't know how to tell them this, but I have no idea what I'm doing. I just make it up. 
I come to work, I make it up, I put it out in the world. Some people like it, some people don't like it. And then I just keep going with it. I, you know, negative commentary doesn't really bother me. So that's why I'm able to just keep doing whatever it is that I feel like doing when I feel like it's the right thing to do. Okay, well, it's certainly uh, working. So wonderful. Thanks for uh, sharing, Chris. You got it, my friend. Thank you for listening to the Specify Growth Podcast today. Make sure you check out youtube.com forward slash Tats Talks for video of today's podcast. Hit the subscribe button for upcoming episodes. This podcast is a part of the C-Suite Radio Network. For more top business podcasts, visit c-suiteradio.com.